Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in the Word of God to Acts chapter 8 in the New Testament. If you do not have a copy of the Bible with you, uh, there's one under a chair in front of you, and you could grab that copy and turn to page 98 in the back part of it, and you would find yourself located in Acts chapter 8. I, I want to begin by making a very simple statement, but it it's a profound one, and that is this. God works in mysterious ways. Anyone else notice that at all? Let me see some hands. God works in mysterious ways? Yeah, absolutely. And because his ways can be mysterious to us, at times when he is at work, it can be disconcerting and disorienting to us. From time to time, I've shared some of the notes that I have in my credenza in my office. I want to I share the content of two of them with you now. One is a prayer that I have, and it goes like this. Heavenly Father, you are in charge of everything that is going to happen to me today. Whether it be good or bad, positive or negative, may I be thankful from my heart for everything that happens to me today. And then there's an amen to that. That's an important prayer for me to remember from time to time, particularly when His ways mean adversity comes into my life. And then I have another one that goes like this. God deliberately keeps some things secret so that you and I will stay humble and learn to trust him even when we we do not understand what he is doing. And again, that's part of God's working in mysterious ways. Now, both of those quotes... I believe would have been very pertinent to the believers in Acts chapter 8. As Acts chapter 8 unfolds, those are the kind of quotes that they would have held firmly to. And so I just want us to know as we dive into the book of Acts in chapter 8, there are lessons for us here. God has a message for us from Acts chapter 8. Now, today we are returning to a study that actually began last fall. Uh, We began our study entitled Seeds last fall. Uh, The idea of the book of Acts is you have this flow. You have plant, scatter, grow. And we want to talk about today how God works in mysterious ways. As I said, we began our study. The book of Acts, if you look at the outline that we have, basically breaks into three sections. In chapters 1 to 7, you have the church planted. In chapters 8 to 12, you have the church scattered. And then in chapters 13 to 28, you have the church growing. So last fall, we looked at the church being planted. Uh, This spring, we're going to look at the church being scattered in chapters 8 to 12. And Lord willing, uh, sometime next fall, we'll get to the final section of the book of Acts in our seed series where we see the church growing. You know, the locale varies a little bit. In the first seven 
chapters. The church is basically just in Jerusalem, almost completely, if not totally, Jewish in its composition. And then in chapters 8 to 12, we see the church expanding into Judea and Samaria. And then ultimately, in the final section, we're going to see it expanding to the ends of the earth. So here's the plan we have for today. We're going to do two things today together. Number one, we're going to rewind. And number two, we're going to remember. We're going to spend the first few moments together rewinding chapters 1 to 7. As we jump back into Acts in chapter 8, it's just important that we understand the flow of what brings us to chapter 8. And then the second thing we're going to do, not only just to rewind those first seven chapters, but we're going to remember that God works in mysterious ways. And we're going to see him working in what were very mysterious ways to the believers at that time in Acts chapter 8. So let's begin by rewinding uh, in those first seven chapters. So just hang on tight. We're going to move through here pretty quickly. Um, One of the subtitles you can give to the book of Acts is the Acts of Jesus through the church. And what we see in the book of Acts is the beginning of the Acts of Jesus through the church. The truth of the matter is we are still writing those chapters. We're still living out those chapters as Jesus works through the church in our day. But this is the beginning of it all that we have recorded for us in the book of Acts. And Luke is our tour guide in the book of Acts. He is a meticulous researcher and interviewer and chronicler. Uh, Luke wrote more of the New Testament by volume than anyone else um, with the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Some 30% of the New Testament comes from his pen. And we learned in chapter 1 and verse 8 that God had a plan. You might remember that verse, and that was that um, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. That was his plan. And we see that plan begin to unfold in the book of Acts. And I want to remind you that the book of Acts is a book of transition. It's really a a real true transitional book. It's a transition between the Old Testament era and the New Testament era. It's a transition where God had been using primarily Israel to reach the world, and then he begins to shift over to using the church to reach the world. It's a transition between worshiping in the temple and the synagogues to worshiping as local churches. It it, it begins with the apostles being the leaders, and it transitions in the book of Acts to the elders of the church being leaders. And it's a transition even in the ministry of the Holy Spirit because prior to Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit had been with people, but now beginning in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is in believing people. And that's a huge transition. And I'll remind you that we have the church's birthday in chapter 2 and verse 1 on the day of Pentecost. And then we have the church's very first sermon. I don't know how many millions of sermons there have been since then, but the very first one is in chapter 2, verses 14 to 40. And the thrust of that very first sermon, if you will remember, is that God has a plan and Jesus is alive. Look at verses 22 to 24 of Acts chapter 2. 22 to 24. Peter is preaching here and he says... Men of Israel, listen to these words. 
Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. God has a plan in everything that's unfolded, and Jesus is alive. You come to Acts chapter 3, and we have an affirmation, an attestation by God that he was ministering through the apostles. Because in chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, we have Peter and John healing a lame man who'd been that way since birth. For more than 40 years, he had never walked. And yet, Peter and John, through the power that Jesus provided to them, healed him. As you come to chapter 4, something very interesting happens, and that is that Peter and John are arrested. We see that happening in the first few verses. Um, They were speaking to the people, and the religious leaders were disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so they laid hands on them, and they put them into jail. And as you track through chapter 4, they end up going on trial before the Sanhedrin. And one of the statements that they make is a very famous verse in the New Testament. Peter and John communicate this to the Sanhedrin in verse 12 of chapter 4. They say, there is salvation in no one else other than Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. They were basically saying, even under trial of oath, they were saying, there's no one else who's been resurrected from the dead. There's no one else who solved the problem of death. There's no one else who paid for the sins of the world. There's no one else who can give to anyone a new heart and a new life. And then when we come to chapter 5, we see the first major attack by Satan on the church, where he seeks to invade the church with hypocrisy through the whole event with Ananias and Sapphira, where he wanted to infiltrate and derail the church by undermining the character of the church. Also in that chapter, Peter and John are arrested again in verse 18, so second arrest. And in verses 19 to 26, the angel breaks them out of jail. You remember that? And in particular, I want you to notice um, verse 27 to 29. They're broken out of jail by the angel, so they bring them back again and stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Be quiet, in essence. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. And they were so upset with them. We learn in verse 33 that they said, we're going to kill these guys. We're taking them out. But what happens is there was a Pharisee, verse 34, named Gamaliel, who was respected by all the people, and he stands up and just basically says, time out, I don't think we should execute them. And he goes on to say in verses 38 and 39, we need to let them alone. If this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. 
But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may be found to be fighting against God. So they don't kill them, but in verse 40, what do they do? They flogged them, which was not an easy thing to have happen to you. In Acts chapter 6, we, we learn for the first time that ministry is a team game as we see the apostles mobilizing people for ministry. And as is always true in the rest of the New Testament, it was true from the very beginning that spiritual qualifications come into play if we're going to be involved in ministering to people. So in chapter 6 and verse 3, he said, we want you to select um, seven men from among you, men who are of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. And then we come to the rest of chapter 6 and chapter 7. If you just remember how the flow, all this flows, I want you to see the flow into chapter 8. We have the church's very first martyr. The very first martyr of the church was what? Stephen, exactly. And, and Stephen gives in chapter 7, verse 2 through verse 50, a very long message. And the theme of that message in part is that resistance and rejection on the part of the Jewish leaders had been a pattern all the way back into the Old Testament. And so he's preaching this message, and he comes to actually confront them quite strongly in verse 51. Look at that. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, and your ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did in the Old Testament. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you've now become. You're murderers. You who receive the law as ordained by angels, you don't even keep it. He says to those religious leaders, you are Guilty. You're guilty. Well, then if you remember what happens in verse 54, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, which means they were infuriated. Uh, it means they boiled in their fury towards Stephen. So what happens? This is where we ended last fall. They drove him out of the city, verse 58, and they began to stone him. And that's another one of those things that's easy to just read and forget what that means. Can you imagine being beaten to death by people throwing rocks at you? Rock after rock after rock after rock until you're not only knocked down and unconscious, but until you're dead. They began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, very much like Jesus had done, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said that, he fell asleep or he died. Now, all of that, just that rewind that we just went through, brings us to where we are today in chapter 8 verses 1 to 4. And I want to read those verses. I invite you to follow along. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, 
a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So the first thing we did was to rewind our way through those first seven chapters. Now what we want to do is spend some time remembering that God works in mysterious ways. And as we talk about this, I want you to sort of climb into the life experience of the church in Jerusalem. You know, at this time, the church is approximately two years old. At this time, the church is made up exclusively of Jews who had trusted in Jesus as their Savior. Basically, up to this point in time, all that we had seen the church do was city evangelism. They had evangelized a lot in the city and people who were visiting the city, but that's where everything had been focused. But remember, God had a sovereign plan. The plan that was delineated in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. He works his plan in mysterious ways. Now, we've already seen a preview. We're going to go into this in a little more detail, but do you see what's happening to the church? I mean, think about it for a minute. Just place yourself there. Outside of Ananias and Sapphira, had anyone significantly stepped outside of God's will? No, not at all. You know, they had been sharing the message. They'd seen thousands of people come to Christ. They were being faithful in their walk. And yet what happens to them? Overwhelming adversity hits them. You know, they had gone from having some warnings given to the leaders in chapter 4 to a flogging that happens to the leaders, which was a significant event in chapter 5, and now we have the stoning, not even of one of the apostles, but one of the other sub-leaders in the church in chapter 7. And then that brings us down to verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, this is just the beginning, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And notice Saul plays a key part in this down in verse 3. It says, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. Now, when we see Saul... In verse 58 of the previous chapter, um, the witnesses were laying their robes at the feet of this young man named Saul. Uh, apparently, people were taking their coats off, their robes off, because if you're going to throw stones at someone, you want to be unrestricted, you know, so you can really let it fly. And they were laying these down at the feet of this young man named Saul, which indicates to us that Saul was an organizer of this event of the Stephen 
the, the stoning of Stephen. And it just seems like that public death freed him to turn it loose. And it says in, in verse 3 that he began ravaging the church. I think the NIV says he began to destroy the church. A very interesting verb. It's a very, very graphic verb. It only occurs here in all of the New Testament. It's a word that means to do injury to someone, to, to devastate, to disfigure, to annihilate. It's a word that was used of a wild beast mangling a victim. And so sometimes I think we, we lose the, the, the thrust of this adversity that fell on the church. This pictures an irrational, relentless pursuer who has sadistic, if I can say it, cruelty. An irrational, relentless, sadistic, I can't get that word out today, cruelty in mind. I mean, this is horrible. And Paul, when he looks back on these events in Acts chapter 26 and verse 11, he says, I was furiously enraged at them. And in Acts chapter 22, verse 4, he says, I pursued them to the death. I mean, this was strong stuff coming from Saul. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, he says there, looking back, he said, I persecuted the church beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. He said, when you want to measure it, I don't care how you measure it, it was beyond measure. You can't even measure the kind of ferocity I went after these believers in Jesus Christ. What do we see being described here? Well, this is the Jerusalem Gestapo, if you would. This is the, the Gestapo coming at all hours of the day to haul people away. This is the Jewish ISIS being unleashed on people Kent Hughes has an interesting quote. He says this, following the church through the book of Acts is like following a wounded deer through the forest. Drops of blood mark the trail. Now, now, please remember, were the believers in Jerusalem doing anything wrong? I, I mean, they hadn't in any significant way stepped outside of God's will. They, they had been very faithful in their walk, faithful in their practice, faithful in sharing the gospel, and yet what happens? overwhelming adversity comes down upon them. It's part of the plan of God. And I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but I know I have from time to time, and, and that is God's plan at times to me seems like it's a secret script. I don't really know what the script is. I don't know why it's happening. And that happens to us in life. But we're never outside of his plan. Jesus, John 13, verse 7, talking to the disciples, at one point says this to them. He says, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Now, another translation says, you don't understand now why. Someday you will. Someday you will. I love Vance Havner's quote. He says this, God marks across some of our days will explain later. 
And I don't know about you, but I've had some of those days where it's like, what in the world is going on? I don't understand this. I don't understand this adversity. I didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't way over here in the Thule somewhere in the weeds. But this kind of adversity came into my life. And just some of our days are just, we'll explain later, because he has a plan. So you have these followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. They hadn't been doing anything wrong in their spiritual life, and suddenly they have a wild beast going after them. A wild beast named Saul. But here's the point of all of this, and that is that God had a plan. God meant them to be right where they were. And as they find themselves forced out of the city of Jerusalem into the outer regions of Judea and Samaria, that's right where he wanted them to be. And I don't know what adversity you may be experiencing now or adversity you've had in the past or what adversity might come this next week or the week after, but it's important to remember that when that happens, God means you to be where you are. And there are eras in our life when it's hard to see his hand. You have to know they were thinking that. Like, why, Lord? Why is this going on? I mean, you think back into examples we have in the Old Testament of Joseph in prison. He didn't do anything wrong. He stood up for righteousness, and he ends up for years in prison. That had to be an era in which it was hard to see the hand of God in his life. Moses is told by God that you're being called to deliver the nation of Israel from the land of Egypt. And Moses spends 40 years shepherding sheep. What's that all about? 40 years. No doubt that was an era where it was hard to see God's hand. And you know, this guy... Saul, who later became Paul, he experienced a lot of adversity. From 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it's kind of interesting to go back here from time to time. Verse 23, he begins to delineate all the adversity he had in his life. And he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And he goes on to say there, he said, listen, I have had far more imprisonments. I've been beaten times without number. What does that really mean? I mean, how many times has he beaten up? Often in danger of death, he says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. They thought 40 would probably kill some people. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, with these large sticks. Three times that happened to him. He says, I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And a night and a day I've spent in the ocean. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights. I've been in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Now, that's a little bit of adversity. And I'm sure all of those were eras where it's maybe hard to see the hand of God. Why is God allowing me to go through all of this stuff? One of the things when we went to Chicago and uh, did the weekend to remember there is we had an opportunity to go visit my sister, Laurie, and her husband, Rob. For many, many years, they worked in Little Rock with Family Life. And about two and a half, three years ago, 
they moved to the very southern part of Michigan to work with Life Action Ministries and um, Nancy DeMoss there. Well, they've been up there all this time, and we've never had an opportunity to come visit them. And so uh, after the weekend to remember, we rented a vehicle, and we went over to see them and spend a, a whole day with them and an overnight. And my sister was so pumped about this. I mean, she was so excited, and, and my brother-in-law, Rob, was. And uh, he was getting ready the next day to have shoulder replacement surgery, and they were just looking forward to a great day with us. And so uh, one of the places they decided to take us was to Chip Shawana, Indiana, which is a, an Amish area where they have all of those craft shops and everything else, all the crafts and things that the Amish have developed. And they were just so excited to just show us part of the area in which they live. And we were enjoying the very first building we went into, which was a three-story building, and all these craft shops and everything else. It was fascinating, the great stuff that was there. We're having a great time. We plan to do a number of other things that were going to go on the rest of that day. But we were getting ready to leave that building and to go across the street to another one, and we're working our way down the stairs. And I'm right behind my sister, and she comes to the last step before a landing, and she missteps, and she severely sprains her ankle, uh, possibly has a stress fracture there. They won't be able to know that for maybe until 10 days later. So she's down on the landing. I immediately get her, her leg raised up. I get some ice to put on it. And she's going, I can't believe this. We've waited all these times, and you're finally here. And, you know, now I've, I've done this, and I've hurt myself. And she was going to help her husband as he had his shoulder surgery. And she said, now I'm going to be laid up too. And, and she's just saying, why is all this happening? And it turns out she wasn't able to put any weight on it. So that meant that was the end of the day right there. You know, we had to pack up everything, head out of there, uh, cancel the rest of the day together and, and, and end up going to the minor emergency so she could see whether or not she'd actually had a, a clear fracture of her foot. I mean, sometime you're in eras where it's just hard to see the hand of God. Why did he allow that adversity to come in her life? The truth of the matter is, he always has a plan, but we just may not always know what the plan is. And maybe we'll never know even in this lifetime. Sometimes adversity comes to us, and later on we learn maybe part of the why of all of that. But some of that we may not know in this lifetime. But one day I will tell you this, that every question mark you have will be turned into an exclamation point when we have a chance to see everything from God's perspective, when we see his true plan. Why is he allowing what he's allowing in Acts chapter 8? I don't really know. But we do know that he has a plan that's going to involve this guy Saul. We're going to see this as it unfolds in the rest of our study. But the idea is we need to trust in God's sovereign plan. Go back to Acts chapter 8. It says, on that day, it just sort of like a door swung open and a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That word scattered is just the word for distributing seed. It's the word, by the way, that we get the term diaspora from. Um, the, the whole idea of a dispersion of the believers that happened. 
You know, James, when he went to write his epistle in chapter 1 and verse 1, he writes it to the 12 tribes who are dispersed, who've been dispersed out of Jerusalem into surrounding areas. And so they are all being scattered here. And it says that they're being scattered into the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, we need to sort of halt for a moment and remind ourselves of something here because the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. And there's a long history here. The Samaritans, if you wonder, where did the Samaritans come from? Well, the Samaritans were Jews who had intermarried with the Assyrians. The Assyrians had come and taken the northern 12 or rather 10 tribes, the northern 10 tribes, and sort of scattered them around the universe. But some of the Jews that were there intermarried with the Assyrians, and thus you had the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were greatly looked down upon by the purebred Jews. In fact, one description of the Samaritans was this, those foolish people that dwell in Shechem. I mean, how can you be so idiotic as to intermarry with a pagan Assyrian. So there was hard feelings on both sides because the Samaritans resented being resented by the Jews and the Jews resented the Samaritans. In fact, it's interesting in John chapter 8, verse 48, when they decide they want to insult Jesus, here's what they say to him. You are a Samaritan and you have a demon. That's about as strong as they could make it. And you know what is interesting in the history of things? You remember a lot of the ministry of Jesus occurred up in the region of Galilee. You think of a map, you have the region of Galilee in the north, and then you have Judea in the south, and that's where Jerusalem was. What's in the middle of the two? Samaria. And what is interesting is the normal procedure in Jesus' time is if you wanted to go from Jerusalem up into Galilee, or if you wanted to go to Galilee down into Judea, the simplest way to do it would be to go through Samaria, but they didn't do that because they didn't want to be anywhere where the Samaritans were, so they would go around through Decapolis and through Perea, and they would come back into Judea or the reverse. In fact, there's an interesting side quote in John chapter 8, or rather John chapter 4 and verse 9, just a little parenthetical statement where it says this, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They're being scattered out into the regions of Judea and Samaria. But that was God's plan, right? Chapter 1, verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. But when you understand the flow of everything... Would they have really gone to Samaria? I don't really know the answer to that question. They know that's the plan, but would they have ever gone? God says, it's time for my plan to be put into action. We learn, it says in verse 1, they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria that's talking about to the believing community at large, except for the apostles. Why are the apostles not being flung out at this point in time? Well, we really don't know the full answer to that. In part, it may very well be 
that the religious Jewish leaders had attempted to cut the head off, you know, by attacking the leaders, but that had caused the maximum amount of backlash. It seems almost like there was a shift in tactic. Let's go after the grassroots level instead, and we can undermine this Christianity thing. So they were all scattered without their leaders to the regions of Judea and Samaria. Verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen who'd been stoned. He was under, you know, had to get all those rocks off of him, and then they go to bury him. And it says they made loud lamentation over him. I don't know who these guys were who buried Stephen. Maybe they were people like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus. But they take Stephen's body and they bury it and they made loud lamentation over him. I just want to make this little observation. There's a little myth that goes on in the Christian community at large, and it it goes something like this. If you are spiritual, you don't mourn deeply. That's just not true. We had some very devout spiritual men who buried him, and they mourned deeply. You know, this idea that you're not really trusting God if you mourn deeply, if you lose someone who's precious to you, that's just not true at all. Well, how do they respond in the midst of all this? They're even leaving their leaders behind. They're being scattered out into the areas of Judea and Samaria, and that's very disconcerting. It's very disorienting to them. How do they respond? Verse 4, therefore, those who've been scattered went about preaching the word. Men and women, when circumstances turn adverse, the gospel has enhanced power. One of the things I have an opportunity, it's a very brief opportunity at the weekend to remember, is I just very briefly share the recurrence of cancer in my life. You know, in Chicago, there's like 750 people there. And when I just bring that up, you know what happens? Dead quiet in the room. You hear a pin drop. When circumstances turn adverse, the gospel has enhanced power. The same thing happened with Paul in his, in his life and ministry. In Philippians 1, 12 and 13, he is imprisoned. I mean, this is the guy who's the apostle to the Gentiles who's going to lead the whole gospel surge, and he ends up in prison. What kind of plan is that? But he goes on to say, he said, my imprisonment has led to the greater progress of the gospel. When circumstances turn adverse, the gospel has enhanced power. This has always been true throughout church history. We see it here. You know, you can see it in the nation of China. Some of you are younger, do not realize, but it was not always a communist country. In 1949, communism came to China. When communism came to China, 637 missionaries China Inland Mission were forced to leave the country. Now, that's some adversity. Not only that, but it is estimated that in 1949, there were one to two million Christians 
in the country of China. In the decades since then, it's been estimated that 20 million followers of Jesus have been executed and killed in China. But today, we don't know the exact numbers because it's hard to estimate this, but those who know the most about China will estimate there's 100 million believers in China. When circumstances turn adverse, the gospel has enhanced power. And it's so interesting that Satan was seeking to silence the voice that had stirred all of the city of Jerusalem, and he ended up awakening the gospel message that would ultimately revolutionize the entire Roman Empire. When circumstances turn adverse, the gospel has enhanced power. This is the pattern of church history. Persecution leads to greater proclamation. This is important stuff for us to remember. Now, as we close, I want to talk about some life response that we can have from everything we've looked at. Just kind of tie it all together. Two life responses we can have. Here's the first one. Rest in his sovereign plan. I mean, maybe you're in the middle of adversity right now. Again, it might be coming next week or in two weeks. But it's important that we remember that God means you to be where you are. We need to rest in his sovereign plan. And rather than asking the why question, we need to ask the most important, pivotal, key question, and that is, how can God be glorified in the place where I am? That's the important thing to ask. We need to rest in his sovereign plan, asking how can he be honored with where I am right now. Second life response is to be expressive with the gospel. Because when circumstances turn adverse, the gospel has enhanced power. Here's what we tend to do. Adversity falls on me, and I have this natural tendency to want to get quiet about the gospel message. And instead, we need to flip it around. Adversity comes, and when circumstances turn adverse, the gospel has enhanced power. That's when you want to share the message. And when you're in the middle of adversity, and you are talking about the message of salvation and the glory of knowing Jesus Christ and having a relationship with him, it just has an enhanced power to it. So we need to rest in his sovereign plan. And we need to be expressive with the gospel, especially in adversity in our life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the power of this book. It is alive. And it can change our thinking and change our experience. We thank you for it. We thank you for the opportunity we have to even freely gather together. And we would pray that you would take these truths, rivet them into our soul, ultimately so that you get honored by it all, so that we can say, blessed are you, even when you've led us into a dark 